is the Mindset Athlete Podcast and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset, it's how you prepare, think and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature, anybody can be an athlete by Chris Hoth. And each week on The Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Joshua Alexander. He's the host of Figuring It Out and is also a physio. So welcome onto the show, Joshua. Thanks very much for having me. So beyond the inter- initial introduction that I've given you there, Josh, um, what little nugget would you like to add additionally to my listeners? But I'm not only a physiotherapist. I consider myself to be somebody that's had a lot of experiences in various different facets of life from being an athlete, being an actor, and drawing. I'm a person that draws upon those experiences in order to try and help people in whatever way that I can. I'm just a person that really gets kicks out of helping people. So is that why, uh, for, for give some perspective for, for, for my, my audience there, because I've obviously come across you uh, through Aaron Dew and you guys have done a collaborative uh, weekly Facebook Live, and I'm assuming it will go on both platforms of your podcast there on after to be able to... Um, not target to pinpoint certain areas that people are necessarily struggling with at this particular moment in time and giving them strategies to therein deal with and better manage and obviously giving people coping mechanisms to, to be able to implement and have some sort of quote unquote normality in, in, at this particular time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what, we're trying to achieve. We're both just trying to do our best and we have a quite a nice complementary skill set in that Aaron actually knows what he's talking about with mental health in that he deals with experts all day and he does a lot of research. Whereas I'm just somebody that's had a lot of experience personally and dealing with patients at the same time, not as a mental health therapist, cause that's not what I do, but attached to injuries are often people's mental health because people's identities are often attached to the things that they enjoy doing and injuries and other conditions take that away from people and I've just had a lot of personal ups and downs and developed a lot of strategies to deal with those things. So from your your obviously work life then Josh from an identity perspective now and obviously having that disattachment as well to be able to do it and you having obviously a condition that's put you in a shielding position that you've got had to go go into complete lockdown how has that impacted on your physical and mental well-being not being able to do your job very good question how has it impacted on not being able to do my job can I answer this question with a little bit of back story yep absolutely. As to why because this lockdown hasn't affected me in the same way that I see it affect so many people And that's the reason why I'm attempting 
to impart some of what I've learned from my personal experiences onto other people. And what I mean by that is the condition I developed means that I spend large parts of my year in isolation because I can't get out of the house. So it's something that I'm now experienced in and I have been over the past five or six years. And I should probably give a little bit of the, I'll just give you a condensed version of my backstory as to why I understand what it's like to have a completely busy normal life and then to have it completely shut down. So when I was from the age of kind of 12, I developed this persona and I I attached my whole being to it that I was going to be an athlete, very much like I'm sure you did um, with your wearing your Paralympics GB t-shirt. I was kickboxing for a number of years and I was playing football for a team that was like the youth league of semi-professionals. And I was, it got to a point where it was kind of like choose one, football or kickboxing. And at the time, the Olympic taekwondo outfit or team had started trials for kickboxers to go over and join the Olympic taekwondo or the GB taekwondo setup. And I thought, right, this is my chance now. So what I did was I just pushed hard. I pushed really hard. I trained three times a day, six days a week, nonstop. And I competed in every tournament I could. I traveled the world competing. I'd been competing for Great Britain at the time for a number of years. And my life was kind of just rising and rising and rising in both achievements and challenges. And it was was so, so exciting at the time. But one day I just kind of woke up with a tickly throat and it was the day actually I put, I was one of those people that always put off gradings because I didn't really see how they may be a better fighter in my sport. And it was the day that I was supposed to do my black belt or the day that I was supposed to start doing my black belt. And it was a two week process to get this black belt. And I had this tickly throat and I thought it's just a tickly throat. I'd had a couple of drinks the night before as well, actually, because my, it was one of my best friend's birthdays. He'd just turned 18 or 17, whatever, whatever he was at the time. So I carried on and then I ended up, it was a day of sparring and the sparring was really intense because you have to work for your black belt. You have to prove that that is the case. So where I would normally have been fine and held my own, even in the two-on-one scenarios that you have to face, I found myself just exhausted and I was getting battered and I was bloody, I was bloody everywhere. My face was cut, my nose was beaten up and I didn't want to stop. And I went back home and the next day I woke up and I just, my throat had swollen up and I thought, oh God, what's this? So I went to my mum at the time and I was like, oh, you've got tonsillitis, I think. So just go back to bed. So I did. And that was kind of the start of this long cascade of events where I ended up having tonsillitis another 16 times in total. In that, I developed what were called quinces, which are abscesses, which are filled with just gunk, bacteria, etc. Which, are, which is obviously in those concentrations, really poisonous to the body. So they sit behind your tonsils. And I developed those. And the reason I know I developed those is because on about my eighth time of getting tonsillitis, I'd got so ill, I'd lost about 10 kilograms of weight in little over a week. I hadn't eaten or drank anything in over seven days. And we had, the doctor had given me codeine tablets and they were so small. They were about this big. You could literally pick them up with tweezers. They were so small. And just for the agony I was in, it was about three in the morning. I thought, I'm going to have to take one of these. And it, I couldn't swallow it. It was kind of stuck in the really small airway that I had left. So 
my mum and dad's bedroom was the level above mine. So I crawled up to my mum and dad's room. And I just kind of, I don't really remember what happened next, but I woke up in the hospital and there was a doctor that said, oh, you've got these quinces. So they drained them and gave me antibiotics and sent me on my way. This then repeated and repeated and repeated. So the process of me being ill, I had tonsillitis for about six months in total where I didn't really get to get out of the house. That toll, the toll that took on my body was so immense that it took me 12 months to recover. So for 12 months afterwards, I couldn't, I couldn't go anywhere unsupervised because I would just drop at one point. It was, it's called post-viral fatigue and I see patients with it now myself and I understand how horrific it can be because for the first six months, I'd gone from playing semi-pro level football and competing internationally to my stepdad having to put his arm around me so I could walk down the stairs to go from my bed to the sofa. So I spent in total around 18 months of being pretty much isolated just because I couldn't physically get out of the house. All of a sudden that seemed to fade away and I thought, maybe I can go back to some sports now. So I went back to football training and they explained what had gone on. And yeah, fair enough. Just take it easy. Do what you can. I started running and my knee felt really wobbly. And I thought, why is my knee so wobbly? So I looked down and it started to swell up. And I thought, well, I haven't injured myself. Maybe it's just because I've not run on it for 18 months and it's just getting a bit irritated. Turns out that wasn't the case. So I I ended up going to the doctor, got sent to a surgeon, had a surgery to see what was going on inside my knee. There was nothing really, bits of cartilage like you would expect in any athlete, bits of wear and tear. They cleaned all that up, um, just took little bits of frayed bits off my ligaments, said, yeah, you should be fine. Two weeks later, happened again. So by that point, it started to spread into other joints in my body. And it wasn't just swelling. It started to become pain and heat and this inability to move these joints. So they sent me to rheumatology and I had... Long to cut this short because I'm starting to ramble now. I had about three years where it was just everything hurt so much. Not everything at once, but the joints would kind of change. Sometimes it'd be my neck, sometimes my back, sometimes my hips, knees, toes, elbows, fingers, etc. Everything hurt so much that I just couldn't, I couldn't and did not want to leave the house because I couldn't be a happy person and be in so much pain and I couldn't interact with people and go back to college and learn whilst all this was going on because I couldn't concentrate. So that is essentially the reason why. And now I'm in a place where it's better managed. This is five, six, seven years on. However, I still have flare ups. And when I calculate it, I probably spend about three out of the 12 months, not all in one period, but three out of 12 months in total across the year where I'm stuck inside the house because I can't get out because something has flared up. And on top of that, there's then times when I can get out of the house, but I'm still antisocial because I rely on crutches, etc., to get around. So this lockdown, coming back to your question of how, how has this affected me? It has, but it hasn't. So it's affected me. It's not affected me so much mentally or physically in terms of it's something new and my whole life has stopped because my life is now at a point where at any one point, it's ready to just stop because it has to. It just does that. I, one day I wake up and my body doesn't work. And that's something that I just have to learn to live with. So I've learned to live with the fact that one day you're stuck in the house. That's absolutely fine. The thing that's affected me so much, there's two things. The first thing is that, like I said at the start of this podcast, I really like to help. 
And my skills as a physiotherapist aren't just limited to fixing limbs. They're also respiratory care. And respiratory care is obviously so important with what's going on in this COVID pandemic. The one thing that I wanted more than anything was to go to the hospital and join the respiratory care teams to help all my colleagues out who are battling this every day. However, the medications that I take are heavy immunosuppressants. The medications I've taken in the past have damaged my kidneys to a point where they were almost needed replacing a couple of years ago. And I also have a bit of asthma. So that puts me in the shielded category. So I can't go and help out. So I felt like it feels like when you were on the team, and then you were benched. And as an athlete, you kind of understand that all you want to do is be on the field. And at the minute, because sports isn't a thing for me anymore, my field is going helping people and I was sat on the bench. So that really, that took me quite a while to get over. And that's why I started doing the weekly things with Aaron, because that was a way that I could help out by talking about my experiences. The second way that it's affected me is that I really struggle with seeing the fear that has affected the people on my social media has made them these really good, beautiful people into quite toxic people. And I really have struggled with seeing that. And I understand that people are scared, angry, and just all of the horrible emotions that they're feeling because everybody's feeling them. But it's, it's, really, it's really upset me more than it probably should have done to see them lash out in such a way. So yeah, that's how it's affected me. How do you have that disconnect on that second point then? Because that's obviously something I, I think, be it if people look at it and take that step back from coping skills to do with anything to do with mental health, to do with toxic people, even before or, or when we get to after this uh, pandemic people should obviously have that disconnect to be able to see well how is that person's situation or event affecting me on the grander scalar scale grander scalar of this of the situation versus me having a emotional response or a feeling attached to it which i think as human beings and this is going to go a bit stoic a little bit now with this this, this where i'm going with it is as human beings, we aren't our feelings and we're not our emotions. We are all the same uh, vehicle, just it, just living it a different way. So I think for the question I want to ask you, Josh, on that basis, because obviously I have probably done things slightly different than you maybe, and obviously I'd like to get your opinion on it. What have you done to either appease some of that or to get people to see from a different perspective so is the question how have i tried to stop people from being so angry and toxic yeah okay that is a good question and it is something that i'm in the process of figuring out so the live series is something that i did partly to help but partly everything has a selfish component i believe and part of it was in order for me to become more confident at things like speaking on camera and in the and into the microphone i don't know why because as an actor it was never something i had a problem with but when it comes to real scenarios not just playing characters it was really really difficult for me and in that 
in those six weeks that we've been doing this, every week I've had a discussion about my feelings about spending more time on social media. The first week I was very much involved in the toxicity and the arguments. And it wasn't coming from a place of fear. It was coming from a place of, it was genuinely coming from a place of I wanted to help because I, like you, I have a scientific degree. So one of the major things that we have to do as physiotherapists is be able to interpret research correctly in order to apply information to people that we know is safe. And I have that skill set, whereas many people don't. And it's not because I'm better than anybody else. It's because that's the path, that's the skill set that I chose to learn, as opposed to other people might have chosen to learn, I don't know, acting at school or chosen to go and work in the retail industry or whatever. So what I wanted, what my intentions were, were to help people understand from a person who uses science every single day for hours of the day in order to make informed decisions. Whereas there's a trend at the moment of people believing that research is watching YouTube videos, but it isn't that. It couldn't be further from it. So that was where I was becoming triggered in that I wasn't triggered by other people's beliefs, beliefs, not beliefs. I was triggered by other people's misinformed beliefs, believing they were informed. So it was more annoyed at the stuff that they were consuming. And my problem with it is, is that in science, research is incredibly boring. Can I swear? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, it's really fucking boring. Like it takes me so long to read through a paper of research that somebody has published. Whereas these YouTube videos that people are watching and believing is research are really interesting. So they're easier to believe and comprehend than, it, than the actual scientific journals and articles are. So I was reading the scientific journals and articles and granted many of that information was right at the time, but since proved to be outdated and people were watching YouTube videos and people were trying to educate other people based on the YouTube videos that they'd watched on somebody saying, I have done research. And it's just not, as a scientific person, it's not, it's not the correct way to think. So I was really involved week one. Week two, I kind of sat back and thought, I actually found my, my state dropping where I was starting to feel just generally a bit more down. So it's a case of, as a person, I'm naturally reflective. And as a medical practitioner, not that I'm a doctor, but in that general sphere, we all have to reflect. It's a skill that we have to have to learn. And if we don't have it, we get struck off, essentially. So I like to reflect on everything, not just clinical practice. So I was reflecting on why I was feeling like that. And the one thing that had changed based on all of the other isolation periods that I'd had was that I was now becoming involved in more toxic conversations. And that was the one thing I identified was like, oh, right, okay. So then I just stopped. I kind of thought, well, use Facebook's algorithm or what little you know of it to show you things which are uplifting. So I just started liking and commenting on more dog videos, if I'm honest, and less on other people's statuses. So then I had a period of being really happy where I only had dog videos and things I wanted to see, really. And then I thought, and then people were reaching out based on the videos that we'd been putting out. So I started to comment little bits. And as you comment more, Facebook shows you more, Twitter shows you more, blah, blah, blah. But now I'd had this time away from it and I'd had this time to reflect on my own actions and behavior and how 
unhelpful they were and why I was doing, why I was saying the things I was doing, I started to understand that the people that were arguing were generally split into two groups. And my posts have been about them recently. It's about the two groups that I've called are, and it's because it's the things that I've seen people calling each other, are the BBC sheeple and the tinfoil hat people. And both of those people, in my, in my honest belief, are trying to be helpful. So both of them have a set belief that the thing that they are fearful of is the thing that is dangerous. And in the arguments, I believe that most of them start with trying to educate the other side on what they believe is the most dangerous thing. So some people believe it's the virus and some people believe it's the government control and the economic recession or whatever. And I believe that both of them have a point to an extent. I've taken a step back from trying to have a view on this now, ultimately because it isn't my job to have a view on this. It's my job to help people where I can. And it's my job to keep me and my family safe. It's not my job to debate people on Facebook anymore. Me helping people where I, where I can is trying to get people on both sides to reflect on the arguments that they're having and say, look, this person on this other side essentially believes the same thing as you, but it just looks different. They're trying to help you, you're trying to help them, and now you're falling out. And you're both just like knobheads. Nobody's winning in this scenario. So that's where... That's how my process has developed and that's how I've been able to detach myself by firstly thinking about how I was feeling. Secondly, why do I feel that way? Thirdly, can I change it? Yes. And then after I went through that process, started a new process of why is everybody else feeling like that? So I started asking people as well. And one of the things that's been really interesting is there's three people in my mind at the minute that have been particularly toxic on my social media. And they've put out angry status after angry status after angry status. And just, I've just seen them fighting people all the time. And then two of them recently came out with status saying, I'm really struggling. And it just kind of solidified what I was already thinking in that. People are just lashing out. People are scared and angry and upset and worried. And they're just looking for a place to put those fears. And I've seen it on my own statuses where... Now I'm detached from it. I'm able to disarm the people that are coming at me angrily when I'm asking for kindness. And then in the, in the DMs, I'm getting actually, you know what? I did just feel, I did just feel bad. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't even, didn't even mean to come at you personally like that. Yeah, that's how I've detached myself. Does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. But why do you think people are using the social media platforms? And I'm not going to ster- uh, sterilize, generalize um, by saying it's more male. Males are going to struggle with this more than females because I think probably everybody is lumped into it, into into one box, and even children themselves as well. To be able to em- emit their emotions onto a platform where they are going to get either people are going to sympathize emit kindness to them and obviously you're going to get people that are kind of well your your problem is it's a first world problem and mm-hmm. not have any sympathy whatsoever because of what they're seeing on the television because more and more charities are now starting to put well mm. about africa or about um the refugee camps getting the virus as well whereas yes you need to have a sense of 
uh, sympathy towards that predic particular predicament, but no, no sense of the word now, more than ever, that charity starts at home because we have it in our own backyard. It needs to start here first before we start to solve other people, other problems, other other places in the world. And I think that's probably what most countries are doing. They're looking after themselves first. Yes, it's unfortunate that they don't have the same healthcare system that we are fortunate to live in. Uh, they obviously live in um, squalor and things like that. That's part and parcel of life. But can to make me feel even worse than I already do by putting a video out there, that doesn't help anybody. So why are people taking to the social media platform? Why are people struggling to... I think there were two questions there, and correct me if I'm wrong. What, why, why, are people, one... why, why on the first hand then, Josh, to put it in simple terms, why are people finding it more easy to put a status versus reaching out to people, be it within the healthcare system. Obviously, if you, you are living in a, in a country where this is, this is obviously free, it's a little bit easier to do. I, I, I'm not debating that. Or reaching out to a family member if they're not in your household and saying, I have a problem. Can we pick up the phone? Can we do some sort of video conferencing and letting me iron out my feelings versus me putting out there to... All, per, all sense and purposes to the world and in most cases people don't care okay so like I said at the start I'm no expert in mental health and I'm no sociologist so I don't have evidence based facts on group behaviours and cultural norms but I also think that why do people I think the first time you asked it was why don't people ask for help on Facebook? The second time it's why do people write status? I think in terms of why don't people ask for help on social media? I think because try it. It is incredibly difficult to open yourself up and be vulnerable to so many people when all of us have an ego and the ego is something that wants to be seen as a strong person because why would we want to show weakness? It's not something that is inherent in us as humans to want to show weakness. So I think that's why people struggle to put statuses out. And that might be why partly why people struggle to reach out to family members. I think why do people put statuses out? Because it's quite easy because when you write a status, you don't write it to one person. You could quite easily talk your problems to the lamp in your room because it's not one person that is going to judge you. The status, it depends. I think it depends on your perspective. You either don't want to write a status because you think, oh my God, there's a hundred people going to read this and judge me. Or you want to write a status because you think this is somewhere I can vent this and it isn't to one particular person. In terms of why aren't people reaching out to healthcare systems and family networks, etc. I fundamentally think that anybody that can access those systems are trying to. It's just one, the systems are incredibly busy, whether that be the family system or the healthcare system. I know the healthcare system is incredibly busy and they're trying their best. Or people might not have family members to reach out to, but I think those that have a good family support system 
do reach out because it's that is something that we do as humans we fall back on our the members of our own tribe it's what we've kind of culturally evolved to do i don't think that but then i wouldn't know for the same reason that you wouldn't know because nobody's putting it out there saying i've reached out to family members today so you don't know what other people are doing does that make sense mm, yeah i think that's a good point of view because obviously you don't know what people are willing to like you said it's a it's a form of judgment social media of they're only going to become vulnerable to a certain point and i'm only going to share what i envision comfortable to share i am comfortable with like you say and obviously you don't want to be criticized for being goody two shoes because i've done something that other people may struggle with and, and mm-hmm. be kind of uh inundated with trolling from that basis so i think i think i think you got a valid point there josh that the reason i can speak on that with a little bit of authority i'm sorry to cut you off is that one of the social experiments I've been doing with this time that I've been gifted in this lockdown is being 100% transparent on my social feeds with the good, the bad and the ugly, just because nobody's doing it. And I want it, well, not nobody, but the people that I want, that I know need to reach out to people are the people that are struggling the most. So the reason I'm doing it is because without being condescending monkey see monkey do if you can see somebody else is willing to do that and actually the repercussions are nowhere near what you would expect them to be it then makes it a little bit easier for you to reach out if i can reach out to all five thousand people on my facebook and do it openly and take the criticism and take the the support you can reach out to one person because often it's the people that need it the most that will struggle to reach out to just the one person. I think most people have one person. That is why. So that's why I've got authority on a little bit of authority on why people do and don't post. Because I've done not posting at all when I've been in a bad place. And I've done posting everything, good and bad places. And what has been interesting, actually, which is a little bit off topic, is that the most difficult thing to do when you're in a bad place is to post. But if I was to compare me being in a bad place and completely isolated or me being in a bad place and putting it on Facebook, putting it on Facebook was harder to do than do it on my own, but the response was so much better and it was then easier to cope with afterwards. I got 10 phone calls from a status saying I was in a bad place. Well, that's like looking at it from a bigger picture in terms of you. It is a form of reaching out. And I think that's probably the, I won't call the the easiest one to do, but it's the most normalized because it's only status. So it become part and parcel of our daily habits and behaviors for the last well, almost, it will be 15 years in a couple of years time, but of having Facebook, kind of integrated in part of popular culture so i think what you say there in terms of being able to put it on there for people to see is one is a weight lifted off your shoulders because you've you've 
talked about it and obviously you read it back as well as you're writing so you kind of get that uh, emotional and psychological sense of relief as okay i'm off lifting some of the i'll call it a problem or the issue and making a bigger picture as to i put it out to the world that i am not i'm not coping at this particular moment and obviously people see that and they be it friends family or entourage will kind of like you say ring you up okay what can we help you with to kind of be more uplifting so if you hadn't done it and this is probably where the ego does take precedent and a lot of people will want to do it which i'm not saying is a good or right or indifferent way of doing it if it works for you obviously mm-hmm. do it but shouldering certain problems you latch on and that motion then becomes a feeling it's a lot, lot from a mental health perspective a lot more difficult to get rid of a feeling versus an emotion and i, and I recently uh released one that i recorded two weeks ago a technical difficulty so that went out yesterday and he talked about it from his own experiences as well as if a negative emotion does come in you treat it like a bird landing on a branch and obviously it flying away but if that's a feeling it's a lot it's a lot harder to get rid of it so it's mm-hmm. probably some sort of i don't know if we use a example of something like a vermin or cockroach something something you don't want you're going to do everything in your power to either withhold it at arm's length because okay i don't want to deal with that i want to be in a happy state i don't want to deal with that emotion over there i'm going to do everything in my power to keep it away from me and then you don't really deal with it or you look to disattach and distract which you're not really solving the problem either yes you you are from my own experience and me talking to healthcare professional that's what they've kind of said for everybody to do so you can deal with staying in the moment is to distract 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 but i think i've also had to implement other strategies that you talked about in terms of being reflective in terms of using either um meditation mindfulness and things what i need to yes i need to distract myself and keep busy on the one hand for the day to be as routinely as it can be and then have some structure and some uh normality of it being a nine to five like it was six seven months ago which obviously some people are saying they're struggling with having a routine and their sleeping patterns being all over the place but on the other hand i think as i've progressed and we digressed off air in terms of the mental health i've also got to confront the anxiety the stress and the mental health because if i I keep it at arm's length i don't grow i don't actually solve it's not really a it's not if you look at it from an anxiety point it's not a problem but be it if it got to a depressive state we normally have stigma towards that anyway that becomes a problem that if i don't want to do things that were fulfilling and i was passionate about before lockdown i have now got a problem because if i don't want to exercise i don't want to eat healthily i don't want to 
interact socially as best I can, like virtually, we now have a problem because I'm going totally in instinctively against what we're hardwired to be as human beings. Mm -hmm. So I think where people need to be on the one hand, implement things that are going to work for them. You also need to be reflective as how can I grow and how can I improve as a person and not get into those kind of states where, okay, everybody's going to have a good and bad day because we're not robots. And uh, like you said, people are probably going to jump onto somebody that, oh, it's 24 7, 365, I'm like this. It's like, well, you're either hiding something or you're masquerading your deep, darkest feelings as you don't want to let people to see those because you, you deem that you're going to get judged upon them. And I think we need to kind of, and I think through the middle part of what you said, I think we did kind of get there at a certain point where people are being a little bit less judgmental, a little bit more caring, uh, and were more inclined to generally ask how people were doing they and they cared about the response. But I think now that people have kind of gone, hmm, they've kind of had enough and they want to get back to their own lives and being able to do what they want to do as and when they feel like it. Some people have gone back to what was comfortable and and are starting to lash out now. Yeah, of course that's human nature. I just want to touch on one of the things that you said about the two conflicting mindsets of one, I need to have, I've got this problem, but I need to grill also. I actually believe something different slightly different i believe 90 percent of what you said but i don't believe that it's overly healthy at the moment and this is and i'm only telling you the things i've rationalized to myself and i've developed this process from every time i was so when i said i'd have intermittent periods of isolation my life would be if we were on a graph my life would be going gradually up and up and up to a good place and then all of a sudden condition flared up couldn't move fall off a cliff, steep drop down. And then the same thing again, the same thing again, the same thing again. And with the progress and physical activity, my mental health went with it. It just plummeted every time. So I had to develop a strategy. And I don't think I shared this strategy, but it might be helpful. I don't think that you need to focus on growth in a time like this. It's always useful to focus on growth, of course, but sometimes it's more useful to focus on taking control. And that doesn't mean taking control of your life. That means taking control of one small thing at a time. So you're saying that I need to confront, I've got this anxiety that I need to confront. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. Well, it's definitely true that you need to confront the thing that you are anxious about or just this, the anxious state that you are in. But I don't think that that is where you start for me personally. I think that you start with looking at everything that you've lost and looking at some of the, th- what, what one thing can I take back today? So the discussion that we had yesterday on the live video that I think is really useful for people to watch is about this internal locus of control. You are in charge of your whole self, people with mental health issues or not. And I'm not belittling them because I've been there. I've been to incredibly dark places and I've had to help, had help to get out of them. I'm not belittling the problems. I understand them, but if you don't have this locus of control over all of your, essentially all of your decisions, 
then your emotions, it's almost like you're creating, a, you're not putting up any barriers for these horrible feelings to just invade your mind space. Taking control of small things allows you to take control of bigger things and then bigger things and then bigger things. And then eventually you get to a place where you can choose to be almost, it's not as simple as this, but you can almost choose to be anxious or not be anxious. And that is, you get to a place where you can choose the framing of your thoughts. So for example, coming out of lockdown, if, you're, if you've got a health condition, there's two thoughts with two words as, oh my God, I've got to come out of this lockdown as a virus. Or there's, oh my God, I get to come out of this lockdown. But you, it's not so easy to get to that place where you can just flick it on and off. You have to go, oh, what can I do today? Well, I can wash my hair. Like that's a normal thing to do, but it's something that you recognize that you have control over. Anxiety, lockdown or not, you can wash your hair. You can make your breakfast. You can put your socks on. You can brush your teeth. You can make your bed. I don't know. Pick things that you, can, that you have full control over. And once you've got, one thing that you've done well, you've decided to do, and you've completed that action, it then gives you a little bit more power to take control of the next thing. And that's the thing that I have developed. So from going to, from being an athlete who trained probably 10 hours a day in total, including school, to being somebody who spent the whole life in bed and was carried from place to place, the only way I survived that was by having certain actions that I could take control over. And the first one, was just me being able to reach up for the TV remote when it wasn't to the side of me. And I, I, I shit you not, that is the only thing that I could think of that I had control over, could I do it or not? I was like, oh, actually, what else can I do next? Hmm. Can I watch, I was watching sad things, listening to sad music. Can I watch something happier? Yeah, I probably can. So I did. And it became a chain reaction to get me out of that place and into this good place now where I can look back and go, yeah, that was fucking horrendous, but it isn't, it ends there is an end point if you make those decisions. So I don't think you need to look for growth. I think you need to look for control. Would you point that down more to, if we use cause and effect then from that then, Josh, is it more associated to values versus a tangible goal? Yeah, I would say so. So I think values and goals are separate, but the same. So they're like, in a football match, they're left and right wingers. They work together, but they're not the same thing. So having, looking at your values is a good place to start and then setting goals. is a, And then I'm not, the, you know what? Here's a curveball. I'm not the biggest believer in goal setting. It's something that I do with patients all the time. And I believe that having an overarching goal is useful on the flip side, having a goal makes things worse occasionally, especially if you're struggling with your mental health and you're in such an anxious state where, and I know this is conflicting because I just said set a goal of picking up the TV remote, but I think to set a goal of, oh, I need to get back to work, that is, it's really counterproductive when the goal is bigger than the realistic achievement in a small time frame if you're in a bad mental state. So yes, looking at values and looking at what is important to you and then setting a really, really, really small action or goal, if you want to put it that way, is probably the best way to do it and the most important because I, I think that they're separate, but they need to work together. So for I example, think I'm, you might. I'm, I'm, no, I'm in the same camp as you, Josh, in terms of I, I would say to clients or people that I'll talk with from my professional um, endeavours, 
is don't don't be very uh goal driven now because you have no um control what you do and you don't you don't you already have a stressor in place already for at least 50% of the population uh quote unquote it might be less it might be more so going on a diet now for most people they don't need to do so be it a lot of of what i've seen from be it peers that have put is stay either in maintenance in a maintenance phase or be looking at it from a different perspective as weight gain it's not a bad thing and don't be hard on yourself if you do put on weight during this time i know people have put enormous amounts of pressure uh, more than to weight on during this time and of course you- I'm, I'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you but i think i don't really agree i i do to small bits that yes we need to take the pressure off but in a time now where the majority, of us, the majority of us are anxious around the things that are outside of our sphere of control and influence. The food that you put into your mouth is one of the things that you have 100% control over. So I don't think that... So yes, don't set lofty fitness goals, but equally, I don't think... I think that letting yourself... For me, if I were to let myself off on something like what I was putting in my mouth, that would be a downward spiral into other things I would let myself off for and then end up in a bad place as a result of that. Do you think on top of that then, Josh, because you have you've had a point there and I think I, I, I appreciate you challenging me on that and that's what it's got me to think as well. Do you think this is where people need to either, based on their viewing, um, what would I call this? I'll call them what they're consuming, be it from a television perspective, they need to be mindful and, and be very much like they would be at Christmas. Obviously for us in the UK, Christmas is more poignant where you're going to have that disconnect from the television to be a little bit more, more mindful. And this is probably where if you do have the likes of Sky Plus, BT, and you have the luxury, I'll call it, of being able to record something and then fast forward, fast forward through adverts of, uh, if we call it um, primetime television, will be around food and generate stuff that's not good for you. Um, do you think people need to reflect on what they're consuming from that basis as well and try to not be coerced or manipulated into making oh, yeah, indecisive decisions? Yeah. Of course, 100%. Your mental diet is more important than your physical diet at the moment. I think you can affect one with the other, but 100% your, it starts up here. You, you make the decisions from... I pointed to my head then, in case you're not watching. You make the decisions from your head. And if we look at... So you're into training, aren't you? And you're a trainer. So when we look at losing and gaining weight, when we, when we boil it down to the absolute principles of thermogenics, it's if you want to put weight on, you input more than you need. And if you want to lose weight, you input less than you need. 
However, when we break that down, you and I know that it's not as simple as calories. It's about the quality of the things that you put into your body in order to manipulate the response. It's the same with your head. The quality of the things that you put into your head are far... If you don't put good quality things into your head, you're not going to put good quality things into your mouth. It's a simple, it's, it's a simple cause and effect like that. And like I said before, at the, at the start of this, where I wasn't inputting quality things into my head and it put me into a bad place. What I didn't say was in that bad place, I was eating shit and drinking beer. So changing what I wanted to watch, unfollowing people, unfriending people. And it's, it's the same with adverts, choosing to watch adverts or choosing not to watch adverts. You cho- if you want to eat healthy, Here's a good tip. If you want to eat healthy, watch videos on YouTube of people preparing healthy food that looks nice. In the same that it will activate the same pleasure senses in your brain as watching the KFC advert will do. It's just you have to look for one, whereas the other one is thrown in your face. Well, it's the same. I, I, I'm open to telling people that I'm the same. What I've done with consumption of news beginning of lockdown consume it on a daily basis that's toxic because everything was very um wasn't even polarized for the from a british perspective it was very negative downright and it wasn't didn't look at to try and show the other side of the argument in terms of people surviving and coming out of hospital thinking well do you on the one hand and this is i think where the italians did slightly better their prime minister said you need to not do this because this is going to have an enormous amount of effect on mental people uh, on the mental health of of the population whereas our government didn't do that and obviously i wouldn't say they got away with it but they were only doing what was best for them for obviously to be able to get their viewership up so if you can scare people in a sense of they have to tune in to find the latest information you're going to do that. And I think, I think more and more people are starting to detach and disengage from it. It's like, well, it's not positive. Uh, it's not changing. Let me consume less of it. And I think less and less of the population are now watching the television and they're going to look at more things that are a little bit more uplifting or uh, obviously a sense of, uh, comedy or something that's going to be a mm-hmm. little bit more keep them in, on an on an even keel or in a happier place and i think and the, and if they are choosing to consume the news they decide well i'm going to go on the internet and i think it's been a little bit more uh, rounded figure versus i think the news is starting to come full circle but it's still in a, in a negative place whereas like okay People are dying, mm-hmm. but that was the same before lockdown, and it won't change if we, if and when we get a vaccine. That won't change. People are not immortal, and I think when once the Western world can kind of get a grasp on this, well, I think the Eastern portion of the planet, I think, has got a bit of grasp of life and death. They're a little bit more accepted, whereas we are want it on our terms and we want to go out when we decide whereas that's not that's never going to be the case you could you could be gone tomorrow and you have no you have no bearing on that whatsoever so i think once 
I think this may change people's perspectives on overall appreciation of life as it's not finite. I have no control over of it whatsoever. So let me make the best of it to the root core of, of my existence. I think like we did as children because we, we had no, we had no care in the world for most so that we went out and enjoyed life to the best of the ability every day as we could and didn't look at the risks. Whereas I think once you get into adulthood, you start to play, you start playing these scenarios of what if, and some of these may never happen, but you mm-hmm. look to put yourself into a sense of fear, anxiety, or a sense of dread of uncertainty that we have no control of whatsoever. Okay. I've got a few thoughts on what you just said. The first th- the first thought that I have is that in terms of what the government did, didn't do, get away with the media, etc., I'm not personally or professionally qualified to talk on either of them. However, what I do know is that people will always find fault with any given outcome. So if they... so if I don't know what the Italian situation did or didn't do or what the British government did or didn't do, but if I think I understood you right, if the British government had censored the news, there would be a whole, there there would be outrage at that. However, when it wasn't censored, there is also outrage that is, that is censored and the same with the lockdown. If If there was a lockdown, people are outraged that there is a lockdown, it's destroying the economy, all valid points. But if there wasn't a lockdown, there would be outrage that that the government are just letting people die. So I'm not qualified to talk on what what people did or didn't do correctly because I don't know. I've got no idea. I just know that in any in any given scenario, there's going to be people that say this and people that say this, and there's going to be emotions attached to either of them. With regards to will people change, I believe that they will change temporarily. I don't think that. I think in 12 months time when a lot of this is forgotten about, so will the emotions attached to it also be forgotten. And the reason why I believe that is because of my experience with patients, often what is needed. So in this hypothetical scenario, I have many patients that are faced with two options. Option one is a change of lifestyle, a really difficult change of lifestyle to what they've become accustomed to. It's incredibly scary because it's such an upheaval to what they're used to doing. Option two is a potentially life-altering, life-endangering surgery. People will choose option two, the the life-altering, life-endangering surgery, because people, I think people fundamentally understand, or what I understand from people and my patients, not all of them, but just some of them, is that people will only make a true, wholehearted, whole-being change when either the fear of staying the same or the pain of staying the same outweighs the fear or the pain of change. And often the fear of changing their lifestyle and habits is so overwhelming that they'll risk the the life endangering surgery. So I don't think that this fear is enough for people to change forever. I think that temporarily they've changed. Look at all the people out running and walking that have never done it before. When life returns to normal, I don't believe all of those people 
will still hold those values because the inherent danger to, to their life and health will have gone. It will stop being talked about so much. There may be a vaccine, there may not be a vaccine. The incident rate will be lower because not everything lasts forever. Those habits will not stay the same because they aren't what made people who they are originally. And I don't think they were sufficiently painful enough for people that didn't catch it in order to make a proper change. Do you think as well then, Josh, the changes in incremental weather are a factor because you don't see as many people generally when it's crap outside. Yeah, of course it's easy when it's warm. Definitely it's easy when it's warm. Well, you, you and I, I definitely would much rather be outside when it's nice and warm than when it's pissing down with rain. That's just... People like ease, don't they? We're just, we're, that's what we're kind of made for. Your brain's always going to find the easiest and most comfortable thing to do. It's just who we are. Also, there's a bit I missed on your last question, and I apologise. I'm going to go back to it. This is something that I expect learned from myself, not from really anybody else. I believe that there was a point where when all of this shit had happened to me, I had had a victim mindset of all oh my word all of this is happening to me. And that gave me endless amounts of anxiety. And with regards to your point, when you ended on anxiety, I think that there's a large proportion of the population who potentially have a bit of a victim mindset at the minute. And why wouldn't you? You you, Nobody ever asked, nobody asked for this. Nobody asked for their life to be, and their family members to be killed and their life to be disrupted and being forced to stay at home. This has happened to them. But changing that, I believe that, changing that victim mindset is equally as powerful as turning the negative news off. But do you think it's because it's uh, like you talk, you touch upon the two examples. Do you think it's because it's a massive wholesale change from the, to what, which it is to go from be I've spoken to people, they, they wanted to, and more Americans uh, than, than anything else they were kind of chomping at the bit to go back to normal and not looking at the con- the consequences of those actions versus if you go back to normal and things are not uh, as close to the R value of one, I don't think we're, I don't think you're ever certain to get it to down to zero, but to one from an infection rate, is, is difficult because it's like, well, yes, you want, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm in the same camp as you and, and same with you. We want to be able to go out and, and, and uh, socialize uh, with people, be even common strangers in the street and being able to have a conversation with them and mm-hmm. not be at risk. But we don't have control over the outside environment, so to speak, because, um, we don't know with testing, and, and you and I, we just we said this off air, we live on the same island, but we're put two, two, two totally different um, ways in which they're going about controlling the virus. Whereas I thought, okay, it's not a good or bad or indifferent way of thinking. Well, it's a, it's a, epidemic for the whole United Kingdom yes we have devolved powers to all, all four countries but I would be okay with with the power resting in Westminster 
So we have whatever's put out on the news is not just for England, but for the whole whole. Of the, and then you, you you're not having this conflict of information as well. It's it's this set of parameters for England. It's this set of parameters for Scotland. This set of parameters for Wales, and then this set of parameters for the Northern Ireland. Obviously, Northern Ireland's got a border with a different country, so theirs was probably even more difficult. But it's quite difficult on the one hand for people to, and I live not far from the English border, about half an hour away, when obviously they eased certain restrictions in England, people were straight, straight on the phone to uh, holiday resorts where I live. Oh, can I book a holiday? It's like, well, no, because we're on, still on lockdown. And this was two weeks ago uh, to give some context. Just because you can do any exercise throughout the day in England doesn't mean now you can go on a holiday. Whereas I think coming back to what you, your point of, of the victim mentality, you, you think being from using the, the slogan the government said, use will stay home, save lives and, and help the NHS to now that that's kind of changed and stay alert that now you, because you feel victimized that your house is in imprisonment, now they ease some of the limit, the restrictions. Now you can go on holiday. It's like, well, no, this this is not this is not this is this is this wasn't easy for anybody. I'm not debating that, but it's not imprisonment from a sense of from a first world perspective that you have a roof over your head, you have clean running water, you've got food, and technically you can eat, you can consume what television you want versus what we talked about earlier in the episode of be it you could be for argument's sake living in Africa or living in a refugee camp where it would be the ramifications possibly could be worse sorry mate, I don't know what you're asking in, t- in terms of do you think people are victims of their own mind in terms of because they've been for no fault of their own, had their lives flipped out upside down. So now mm-hmm. when the restrictions are taken away, I want to take some of my liberties and freedoms back, where in a sense they've haven't been t- those haven't been taken away anyway. That's a good point. That's a really good point. I wholeheartedly believe that the only things that we are victim to is our mind is our mindset. And I think it because I think when you're asking about the liberty side of things, I think actually it comes from, like you said, a case of perspective. I don't use the children in Africa perspective. I use the children in England perspective that are with abusive parents. That is, that must be for those I, I can't empathise, but I sympathise that or try to that I couldn't imagine anything more horrific. For people that are locked in a home with people that abuse them in whatever kind of way my perspective on it when i've had my little bits of wobbles as we, as we discussed is i am so incredibly fortunate that i'm not in that minority of people that are having such a hard time the rest of us are having a bit of a hard time it's not a big ask for people to say stay at home for the majority of us like you said, because we have a roof over our heads, it's warm, we've got the telly, we've got the internet, we can record telly 
whatever. But for some of us, that home is worse than prison. So that is my perspective on it. And I don't, I, I couldn't even possibly comment on how those people could cope or deal with this because I can't even comprehend how difficult it must be. And that is one of the, it's horrendous to think it, but when I, when I have been a bit low, I'm thinking, well, actually I'm in a beautiful home with the warmth and there's no danger here has been the thing that has got me through that. I don't believe that many of my liberties were taken because you people in your ultimate liberty is your freedom to think and nobody has taken that away. So people can stop me going out for a few weeks. That's fine. Most people have a few weeks where they can't be asked going out anyway. Liberties are, are entirely perspective things the ultimate one you have is your ability to think for yourself. And a lot of us, while some liberties were taken away, we've been given a lot more freedom. Time freedom is something that people have had next to none of, and now they've had loads of it. And it's been a common complaint that now I've got too much time freedom with, I don't know what to do with it. That, that thought freedom has allowed me to learn so many new skills. My ability to sit on you with a podcast now is significantly better eight weeks down the line than it was the first podcast I was on. The first podcast I was on, I shit you not, there was a puddle of sweat that I was sat in. My throat was cracking. I was drinking water every 15 sips because I was so nervous that my mouth was going dry and every other word was... So now, it's just been... There's many ways that many of us have been really fortunate and especially being in the UK with the coronavirus job retention scheme that there's so many nations around the world that haven't had income support from their government and yeah everybody's kicking off that we're going to be paying we're going to be paying for it with taxes and negative interest rates etc etc but this is keeping people alive and it's keeping food in people's cupboards and i for one am grateful to be part of this nation whatever liberties were or were not removed well, I think it's, and this point I want to, to kind of almost end on with that, is I think it's a perspective and it's a choice. It's a cho- choice, like you said all along through the episode, as to which mind frame, my, mindset you want to put yourself in. Do you want to put yourself in the negative camp or do you want to put yourself in the positive camp? Um, obviously, you talked about tax and recession, interest rates and... I can't remember the other one, but it'll probably come back to me. But in terms of that's a what if we have just no bearing. Caveat, I don't know about any of those. I'm just commenting on things that I've read people saying on, on social media. Well, they always say that the other one was Brexit months ago. That's another one that's, uh, will it get done? Will it not get done? Um, and where, where will we be econo- economically down the line? You think neg- the media thinks negatively. Who are we to know? We might be in a better position. It's like it's this this sense of bringing up uncertainty from a negative perspective. You don't know. It doesn't even think negatively. It's just fear sells. Fear sells clicks and views, and without clicks and views, the media don't get any money. That's why. That's why there's nothing positive in there. Or there's a, a section this big on positivity in paper this big it's just because if you see something as a human being if you see something that is positive 
in an advert, you probably scroll past it and go, that's nice. But if you see something that invokes a fit that invokes fear, you're going to click it because you're going to want to avoid it. I think that's all it is. The media, I'm not one of these people to bash the BBC or the media or whatever, but fundamentally they are an industry and they need to make some money. And it's an age old thing that fear sells more than positivity does. Don't know if those journalists do actually believe a lot of the things that they're saying or whether they're just asked to publish these things. I don't know. I'm not qualified to comment, but I am. I do know that people come to me. People, I have a hundred people that come to me, 95 of them come to me because they are in pain or scared of the thing they're about to lose by the pain that they're in. Only five of them come because they want to maintain the happiness that they've got. But do you think your job obviously is obviously for the physical contact that it brought, because obviously you can't do your job now, uh, or it's very limited in its way that they are probably doing it virtually in some mm-hmm. manner or form, or obviously via phone to be able to support do these sorts of exercise, et cetera, et cetera, to, to alleviate some of that pain. But do you think, uh, and obviously this is only your opinion, by the kinesthetics that it brings and through sort of touch, if you're in a good place mentally, do you think you admit that positive energy in that person back in the day that you were able to do your job and vice versa if you were in a negative state? Does, do my, does my state when a patient comes affect does, my patient's Does state? your state of mind affect your patient's own cognitive state before and after treatment? So for example, oh, yeah, you're, you're in a good place and they're not, and do they walk out being in a better place just by the physical contact? A hundred percent. If I could go higher, I would. It's not just the physical contact. It's, if you are, let's say that not many people will be able to see this, but I'm drawing with my hand a low line and that's where you are when you come to me and then add 10 centimeters above that line, an imaginary hand. That's where I am. If you spend an hour in a room with me, either you're going to drag me down, which you are not, or I'm going to drag you up a bit. It's the physical contact. Yes. Having a massage will release endorphins and make you feel good for 20 minutes. It's one of the the tricks and skills that we have in our arsenal as physiotherapists that we will make you, that you do physiologically feel better from having somebody touch you. And also I have to spend a lot of time physically supporting people in places where they're sore. So they then feel a bit safer. But if I, I, there's many patients where I haven't laid a single finger on the patient, but we've brought them up from a two to a seven just by me being at a 10 and them being at a two. It, it doesn't, those two energy levels, nobody stays on the same path. You come up or I come down and I am so well practiced at it. And I'm so, I mean, I enjoy being up at a 10 so much with my patients that you ain't dragging me down to a two or to a six, seven, five, whatever. So you're coming up to my level and I don't, and I think the majority of the best practitioners that I see like, let's say let's say the doctors you've been to when you walk into them and you thought he's an arsehole you feel a bit you feel a bit worse or when you've had doctors or practitioners that have made you laugh and you've been happy you walk out of there a happier person it's just the same with anybody in a room you're trapped in a supermarket with an arsehole 
they make you feel a bit crappy if you if you go to the supermarket bump into somebody that's hi how's your day um can i help you get this you just feel uplifted i think the it's just the energy transfer like you said so do you do you think and this is only an opinion now do you think this is as close as you're gonna get at this particular moment is this kind of face-to-face um yeah definitely uh communication to be able to emit that energy definitely so there is an i the area of physiotherapy that i work in specializing in injury reduction athletes and general musculoskeletal conditions there is nothing that is life or death so it's not the way i see it at the moment is it's not worth the risk to me or my patients especially with me shielding at the moment it's not worth the risk to either of us for me to be for us to be within such a close radius when we can have a very similar conversation so I know I watched your face when I was talking about being at 10 and being happy. You came up a bit. It, it can quite easily be transferred over the internet. You can still see me. You can still hear me and I can still be as, as daft as I want. So my penultimate question to you then, Josh, on that one, I'm based on, we, we talked about, obviously you, you did football as a kid and I think you, you'd be better served to answer this question than me. When I said to you based on the, and we use the premiership because it was Sky Sports News in this country, using first world problems as to why they weren't able to social distance themselves. What would you be your opinion on some of the footballers being adamant to, I think Troy Deeney was one and he did it was because his son was high risk. I, I, can, I can accept his as... Well, he's doing it for the betterment of his family. That's fine for him not to go back to training. But for, I think it was Danny Rose saying, I'm not willing to put my health at risk for entertainment when sport is exactly that. So my argument for him would be, you're willing to be paid an exorbitant amount of money for your health. However, you're not willing to uplift a certain proportion of the population, because not everybody likes football, which is fair enough, to entertain them in stadiums that will be vacated other than the the teams themselves the, the and the officials and, and obviously the camera crew. The other argument for him would be well you don't be you don't be paid at all because you're not doing a job. So for 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 your for your opinion based on those two points what would you be your take on what should they do in terms of the grand scheme of things in terms of its importance to get okay. things back to normal? Okay. I've a bit of a cop out answer here. Firstly, you've said first world problems quite a few times. And I understand that first world problems compared to the developing economic nations problems are contextually not problems. However, in the context of, you and I do live in the first world or the economically developed world. We are very fortunate. They are real problems in the context that they are put in. So still those problems have to be addressed. So I understand that Sheffield, whilst that problem that Sheffield are having in the grand scheme of the whole world and the people that don't have running water is the most trivial problem in the context of they are in the premier league where everybody else above them and they have an aim to achieve that is a very real problem for them so i 
don't think that putting these problems into first world and third world problems, I think it's really useful personally. So if you're annoyed that your light's gone, well, people don't have electricity. I think it's really helpful there, but I don't think it's particularly helpful in scenarios such as the premiership, etc. With regards to Troy Deeney and Danny Rose and people outwardly saying, and openly, sorry, saying that they don't want to be involved, I think that is... The rest of us... Okay, so if you... I don't think it would be fair to take away Danny Rose's personal choice. It's his life, it's his health, and he has 100% control over what he wants to do with it. And granted, he's probably fortunate enough that if he didn't want to work again, he never would have to. But nobody would make... If you decided you didn't want to go back to work and you could afford not to, nobody would make you. He, whilst yes... And I also believe that you said it works for, it uplifts a very small minority of the population. I actually think it doubles that. So the men at home that are happy because the football's back are making their wives and kids happy because they're not being arseholes because they're moody. So it has a wider effect. But equally, to Danny Rose, that is a job. And nobody else in any other job, regardless of the scale of impact that you make, should be forced, in my opinion, to go back into a job. Maybe when, as a doctor, you sign an oath. So you are, you are bound by that oath. So you kind of can be made to go into work because you've signed up to say that for the better or the worst time, you will do what you can to help out. Even though you wouldn't be made, but you kind of ethically could make an argument that you could potentially be asked, well, really need to go back. Most of the doctors wouldn't need forcing because most doctors and healthcare practitioners get into it because they want to help in good times and bad. But to anybody in any job, I think you have the right to, to not go there. You just don't get paid for it. Like yeah, so. but he'd probably turn around and not be happy about that. But obviously that's an argument in itself. Well, that's it? a choice he makes, isn't it? If he turns to the club and says, look, I'm not playing. If you decided to, if you had a job and said, I'm not going to work, they'll say, right, well, we're not paying you then. It's the same thing. It doesn't, just because he wouldn't be happy about it, it doesn't, make, doesn't mean anything would change. At the end of the day, he's got a contract that if he's not fulfilling, the contract will be terminated. That's a good, that's a good point. I don't know whether or not that was ever raised. I don't, you didn't see that point, point of the interview in the podcast. Because it, it never got to a point where, or it hasn't yet got to a point where he's been asked to play. There's no return date for the league yet. And it's, people's opinions are fluid. It might change. He might feel safer once everybody's been tested. I think that I think it was bar Norwich that hadn't come through yet. They've tested every Premier League te- uh, team, and only six came back positive. But uh, be it, and this is an argument for stats anyway. You could be negative one day and positive the next. So yes, he has a moral point in terms of there is not an absolute certainty towards safety. And somebody actually asked me this question because I asked them in terms of if sport wasn't going to implement a blanket um, in terms of using face uh, masks in terms of doing sports. So I said for some sports, that's not, it's not physically possible because football for one, it's bad enough trying to, to, to breathe normally with a face mask on, let alone trying to mm-hmm. walk or run. So that would be unfeasible to be able to enforce. Whereas maybe sports that are less strenuous, you could impose that and say, because of your 
confinement issues, you must wear masks to be able to do this sport versus uh, obviously the outdoor sports there's a little bit more scope for it's outside so that you can social distance a little bit better than indoor sports. I, I was speaking to my coach for wheelchair basketball uh, two weeks ago. He thinks best case scenario, we go back to training in September. That's still a what if. I'm speaking to my my father, who's who's a retired uh, counselor. He's saying he's kind of said that the the this kind of mindset, you've got to be okay with. You might go back in six months. You might go back in six in a year. You may never be go back, and mm-hmm. you have to be okay with all three of those scenarios because yeah. ultimately, um, from that perspective what you were doing from a life perspective may never go back to normal ever again. So yeah. you've got to think about it. Okay. It's uncertainty because it's in the future. It might go back it might, it, or, and, and, and it might not. Okay. That's I could okay. not agree more. One of the things that I've learned from being in that scenario is that when you're in that scenario, just begin, start, just begin setting out bricks for a new path. Just begin learning a new skill. If you go back to the way life was, then and you didn't, you don't love that thing that you started to learn. Just drop it, carry on doing what you're doing. But at the minute, one, it takes you to that point you said before of you can still be progressing. It's not necessarily progressing at your main end, but it is progress. You're no longer stagnant, and two, it's giving you back an element of control. No, it's enjoyment. I think, and and, and I I I said to somebody on on, on another podcast. I have the opportunity. I have the fortunate uh, opportunity. I've got basketball in the house. Picking up, just picking it up, but and messing around with it in my hand brings me joy. Uh, I happened to stumble across a YouTube clip of I think it was an excerpt from Michael Jordan's new Netflix series that brought me joy, and that was just looking at basketball. So it's <laughs> like, well, I'm not physically doing it, and it still brings me joy. So I guess it's that sense of consistency that we talk about and it kind of a reflex as it's muscle memory as well that what i'm looking at i used to do or at one point in time did what did it bring me happiness joy okay that's the same thing and and being able to like you do you said progress on a certain skill set that's still thinking i'm not physically doing it mm-hmm. that's a skill set in itself and it's been able to become a better speaker like you you talked about in terms of podcasting and being a social presence uh kinesthetically picking up a skill be it an instrument or something like that or exercise and, and the visual one of learning and, and maybe expanding on 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 just that one because that's a uh, yeah, one to the to the core of where we are most people are very good at one of them i'm fortunate to probably be able to learn in all three and and some some i'm better at than others but it gives you a time to be able to improve on that yeah you're 100 percent correct just to add on to your point a little bit about the opportunities that you've got in this of developing skills you don't even have to develop skills you can just attack weaknesses so, for example, I work with a lot of tennis players. It's where I, the majority of my athletes come from, tennis and boxing, because it's just where you kind of end up funneling into one area in, in physio. 
And the majority of problems, as you might expect, come from the shoulders. Now, there is an, we can predict certain limitations will lead to certain problems in the shoulder. However, in athletes, they, don't, they can't address those limitations because those limitations are brought about by doing the activity repeatedly over and over. Now they've got a time where there is no competition. So we've gone after those weaknesses hard in an attempt for injury reduction for if and when the seasons do return. There's just always, like you said, there's, there's always opportunities. And it's been, this has been, if we could have prayed for something in terms of, in terms of injury rates in certain sports, something like this, we wouldn't have asked for something so drastic for people to die, but to have such a period of time would, would have been, it's just an opportunity we would never have dreamt of. Well, it's the, also the one that you, you talk, you talk about time. It's, it's, uh, a, um, a relative importance towards rest and recovery. Most people, not just sport, don't put an importance on it, be it no, sleep, um, athletes are probably not from sleep perspective but recovery standpoint an athlete or somebody that's athletic minded sees recovery as kind of something that's not necessarily bad but a double-edged sword in terms of they're always competing against a perceived person versus themselves yeah it's that thing of they're working on my day off and that that notion has got everybody to overwork that's an that's an interesting debate in itself. I think for a different day for you and I, that one. So on that note, then, Josh, my final question to you uh, to wrap up the episode then is: if you had to summarise what we're speaking about, and obviously it's going to be a very difficult question to answer now, into one sentence for people to take away from the episode, what would that be? All pain and problems are temporary. There's always, comma, there's always something you can control. So I know you said one sentence. That's my one sentence. The, the example that I've, that I've got, and again, it's reframing. So my, my nan was one of the first people I know to catch COVID-19. And she's in a care home and she was put on end of life care because she got to a point where she was minutes or hours from dying. Anger wasn't the choice. The, the choice was, well, it was gut-wrenchingly, luckily she survived. The choice was, it was gut-wrenchingly painful to receive that news. But the choice was to look at, that was gut-wrenchingly painful because there were so many beautiful times that we had that I knew we weren't going to have anymore. So in all of the pain, there is beauty. And in all of the and in all of the suffering, it does end. So once again, Joshua, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete thanks Podcast. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Joshua and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at just Joshua Alexander and at James O Roberts Eleven. And again, you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And in addition, if you had any follow-up questions, don't hesitate to shoot them over as well. And finally, don't forget to look him up on Instagram at just Joshua Alexander, as well as his podcast, Figure It Out.
As always, don't forget to check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk and click on the tab resources. But not forgetting, I've also started a new Facebook group, especially for the podcast, which you can find by typing in The Mindset Athlete. And last but not least, and one especially for the amputees listening to this show, I've recently created a Facebook group called The Amputee Coach, fitness and nutrition for amputees to help you lose 10 plus pounds. So make sure to check those links out. They will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipson.com under the category general. So once again, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you next week for another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast.